0: Well, I'm going to change the pace of my messages a little bit. The, the last few weeks have been just really focusing on uh, allowing the Lord to really reveal those things in our lives that really are holding us back from discovering who He wants us to be, who He created us to be, the way that we live our lives in such a way that we're always trying to be something or somebody that someone else thinks we should be, or somehow or other we've even conjured up in our mind and our imagination that we're supposed to somehow be that way. Today I want to just go back to the season that we're in, and it really is not departing from the topic so much because the season we're in, the season we celebrate, Palm Sunday, Sunday today and, and Easter next week, really is the uh, reality of what allows us to discover who we really are in Christ. Until Jesus Christ died on that cross and was raised from the dead, um, there was still power in sin, power in death. It hadn't been broken. So today we're going to be looking at a Palm Sunday message. The title of it is simply Faces in the Crowd. And when we get into it a little bit, I, I, I hope that you can see a little bit what I believe Jesus was looking at on this particular day. But before we start on that, I want to start with, you know, I'm a sports fan, and I remember a few years back, probably quite a few years to some of you, there was a quarterback at Southern Cal named Todd Marinovich. Anybody remember him? All right, there's a couple of you know who I'm talking about. Well, the thing about him that was sort of unique is he was groomed from being a very little boy to be an NFL quarterback. That was his dad's vision for his son's life. And he did everything he could to allow his son to develop into this amazing athlete. He went through high school, and he was a superstar, and he, he went to Southern Cal, and uh, he was the starting quarterback at Southern Cal University, and, which is big-time football. And the quarterbacks there are, are usually all one, one degree or one graduation ceremony from the NFL. And Marinovich Todd was that good. And come draft day, he was drafted into the NFL. Now, if he had been successful in the NFL, you'd probably still be hearing his name. And it's interesting that when I asked, very few of you even knew who the name was. Um, Last I heard, he was in prison. Drugs and alcohol and his life was just a mess. There had been this season of preparation In his life, but the outcome wasn't what he or his father had hoped for. You know, Jesus lived approximately 33 years. Most of the first 30 years of his life were a preparation, a time of preparation. Jesus came to earth on a mission, he had a purpose. His mission and purpose were to get to that cross and to be crucified. Now, we don't know much about the first 30 years, as I said. You know, we know he was born of of the Virgin Mary, and his father on earth was Joseph. We know that he was a carpenter, so we know that Jesus grew up a carpenter's son. And beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. And that about at the age of 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist. in the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit came upon him and Remember, that's when God looked upon him and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then his ministry started, and all of a sudden his public ministry began, and it, and it began kind of slowly. It began slowly, and, and really <clears throat> by his intention, it began slowly, and, and, but it was all heading towards a climax that was going to take place in Jerusalem in about three years from the beginning of his public ministry. And today in the church calendar, we celebrate what is called Palm Sunday. Now we don't make a big deal out of it like some of the churches we probably all came from where we march in with palm branches and all that. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But what is significant is what took place on Palm Sunday. Not so much all of the the, uh, decorations and all the ceremonial stuff. And that's what I want us to look at today. And notice the faces in the crowd on that Palm Sunday. Now this, this story, to get all of it, you really got to look through the four Gospels. And we're not going to go through all the four Gospels of this, but in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12, you'll read most of what we're going to be talking about. But before I even start that, I want to put up a map. I want to put up the map because names of a few places help us to get a better picture in our mind of where this is taking place at. Now if you look at that map, I think you can all see Jerusalem. The, the dotted lines all coming to Jerusalem. And then do you see Bethany just to your right of Jerusalem? Bethany would be more up on the mountains, even a little bit higher than Jerusalem. If you would have been coming from the Dead Sea or the Sea of Galilee to the north, you would go through Jericho and that would be the traveling route and you would come to Bethany. And then when you left Bethany, you wouldn't go very far and there was another very, very, very tiny village called Bethphage. And when you would get to Bethphage, you would be able to see Jerusalem below you and you would be able to see the magnificent temple and so the story which starts on this Palm Sunday in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem and up to this point Jesus has been doing amazing miracles for most of three years slowly his fame has become more and more public knowledge Slowly, slowly, and more slowly, and not so slowly, on some occasions, the hatred of the religious people had been increasing. And pretty recently to this event, Jesus had actually raised Lazarus from the dead. And then he kind of went into the wilderness for a while to kind of isolate himself for a little bit. And now in this time of the season is called Passover. They're getting ready for Passover. Passover. And in the history of that time, when Passover came, Jews would travel from all over to Jerusalem. It would be like a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Some historians say that during Passover week, there could be up to between 2 and 3 million people coming to Jerusalem. Whatever the numbers, it was a lot. And because of so many people coming, if you know a little bit about the history of the time, The Romans were still in control. Well, because so many Jewish people would come, it would be like one of our little small towns having a great big event and the sheriff gets a whole bunch of deputies and sends into town, right? Kind of to keep track because there's so many more people and there could be so much more potential for something to go wrong. Same way here. The Roman government would send many, many more troops to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem area during the Passover week, just to make sure they maintain control of the Jewish people. So that's kind of the setting where I want to begin. And I want to begin with the scripture in John chapter 12. And it starts out by talking about the reality that Jesus is at Bethany. And if you look at the rest of the scriptures, the, the gospels, you'll see If you just read this, you might think he's at the house of Lazarus and and Mary and Martha, but he actually, in Matthew, it tells us he's at a house of a man who was a leper that he healed named Simon. You could find that in Matthew 26, I believe it is. But he's at Simon's house, and he's in the village of Bethany, and he's getting ready to enter into Jerusalem for Passover. And in John chapter 12, it says this, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany... Where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. If you could, I wish you would just put in your imagination what might this scene look like in one of these homes of that day, these, these clay brick homes. And it's the house of Simon. And I believe that's why he specifically mentions Lazarus is there. Mary and Martha are there. Jesus is there with the disciples. And they're having a meal. They're having supper. Can you imagine the conversation? I I like to imagine, even though I can't document it all with Scripture, but can you imagine if I was Lazarus, I'd still be talking about being dead. And saying, man, Jesus, that was so cool. Can you explain to me one more time what that was all about? I was dead for four days. I can't even imagine. All of a sudden, everything was dark. And the next thing I know, I hear this voice calling me out of the tomb. And I I just can imagine the disciples and the talking and the conversation. And Simon's probably over there saying, yeah, I had leprosy. And Jesus just spoke to my leprosy and it was gone and I was healed. We read these stories and we forget the significant events that had taken place in the lives of these people. And they're there with the disciples and Jesus and just having an intimate time of fellowship and a meal. Mary and Martha are there with Lazarus. Of course, Martha, she's busy working, like usual. And then Mary Mary gets up. And in John chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus, and she wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't have me for much longer. He's prophesying. He's telling him what's coming. Judas is being exposed to us where his heart really was. All of this is taking place. Meanwhile, let's shift the scene back to Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has been growing and growing as people are coming for Passover week. Coming by the hundreds, the thousands, maybe millions. And they're gathering in the holy city for the big Passover feast And this year, there would have been something different. And we see this in the Gospels. We'll read a little bit. But it would have been different. They'd they'd been coming to Jerusalem for hundreds of years for this religious ceremony. This year, something was different. This year, there was talk going around about the Messiah. There was talk about this guy who had fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. There was talk about this guy whose teaching is the most amazing thing you've ever heard. There was talk about this guy who had, had seen cripples and he'd spoken to the cripples and they got up and their feet and their legs straightened and were healed completely. This guy who had cast demons out of people and thrown them into swine and they ran off a cliff and drowned. There is this guy who had raised this guy named Lazarus from the dead. Wouldn't it be cool to see him? And these people are gathering and the fame of Jesus has been growing and the people are wondering, is he going to come? In John chapter 11, verse 55, it starts by saying, Now the Passover of the Jews was very near. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves, the religious ceremonies. So they were seeking, they were looking for Jesus. And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all. Now the chief chief priests and the Pharisees had given some orders that if anyone knew where he was, they were to report it so that they could seize him. So we get a clear picture that there was an excitement. What do you think? How could he not come to Jerusalem? We're going to see him. We're going to get to all see the Messiah. We've heard stories. We've heard reports that this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the one who's come to set us free. Maybe this is the week where we get set free of the Romans. Maybe this is the week that the Messiah manifests himself as he really is, and we discover who he is and what he's really came for. Man, if we just get to see him, if we just get to hear him in person, how cool would that be? They're humans just like us. Who wouldn't want to go see the famous guy, the guy doing all the miracles, all these amazing, amazing things? in Jerusalem that week. It had to be crazy with excitement. And Jesus is back at Bethany. But then in John chapter 12, verse 9, it says, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Man, the pot is really beginning to boil. They'd heard, Bethany is only a little over a mile from Jerusalem. They'd heard that he was at supper at Simon's house. They had heard, rumors had spread through the city, that this guy that he raised from the dead, Lazarus, was there too. The excitement is building like crazy. Thousands of them decide to head out towards Bethany. Gliding the road. That's why when you think of thousands of people, it's only a mile, mile and a half up the mountain over a little dip by Bethphage and then right to Bethany. Let's all go. Let's go see this guy. Let's not wait any longer. And they go and it's just people on this dirt road up a mountain. Thousands of them going out to see Jesus. And to see Lazarus. But the Jewish leaders... What's going on? Not only are we going to have to get rid of Jesus, we're going to have to get rid of Lazarus. They both need to die. In Matthew 21, Jesus is getting ready to head to Jerusalem. And as they begin to, to, get, to leave Bethany and they get to Bethphage, it starts to say in Matthew 21, verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem and they had come to Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives... Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and there will be a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks you anything, just say to them simply this The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them with you. Now, the disciples still don't have any idea what's going on. And this might have even seemed like an odd request because if you think back in your mind, can anybody remember any time in Jesus' three years of ministry where he did anything but walk to wherever he was going? I can't find any. But on this day, he tells them, go into Bethphage, that little village right over there, and just walk down the street and you're going to see a donkey and a colt. Just take them. Seriously? And if anybody says anything, just tell them the Lord has need of them. The Master has need of them, they'll give them to you. I don't know what the disciples were thinking, but all of a sudden for us, there's what's, what's significant here? Why are we hearing about this? As we, as we look in, in Zechariah 9.9, 9, an Old Testament prophecy, 500 years before Christ, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, the Jewish nation. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Jewish nation. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus had told the disciples to go get this donkey and the colt of a donkey for one reason, to fulfill prophecy. 500 years before, Zechariah had prophesied that the king is going to come and he's going to come in on a colt of a donkey. Not what they were expecting. Not the kind of king they were looking for. Certainly not the salvation that they had in mind. But notice that Jesus came to Jerusalem of his own accord. Nobody forced him to go at all. It wasn't like the Romans went and got him and bring this guy in. It wasn't like that at all. It wasn't even as if the Jewish leaders finally found him and went and arrested him and drug him into Jerusalem. No, not at all. Jesus came freely of his own will in his own way of coming. He wasn't a victim in any way, shape, or form. He was not a prisoner. He acted very deliberately and on purpose. And he knew exactly what was coming. His years of preparation were finally coming to fruition. The mission that he had came for. And he's coming in on a donkey. Not even an adult donkey. A colt. A picture of not only the king entering Jerusalem, but the type of king that he was coming as into Jerusalem. Back in those days when a king went into a city that wasn't their own city or would coming back from battle into their own city, they would come in and they would be riding on a white stallion, a white horse, this majestic looking animal. With all this pomp and circumstances as the king returns. But here we see a king coming in peace. He didn't have his battle armor on. He was carrying no weapons. And he wasn't riding a horse of war. He was riding a colt. He was coming to establish a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. And boy, what a parade that they had planned. Well, not really planned because it was spontaneous. The people had heard the rumors that Jesus was up on the hill just over that mountain and there he was up at Bethany. Let's go. So they, they, they were all walking. That's why there were so many people out on these, this road, this little mountain path really. And Jesus gets there and he's on this donkey, this colt of a donkey. And the people, can you imagine the excitement that's been building? Can you imagine this kind of crowd gathering together? Looking, hoping to see Jesus, to see Lazarus. They'd settle for Lazarus. In Matthew 21, starting at verse 8, it says Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting down branches from the trees, the palm branches, and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered into Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. What a parade. What a group of people. Spreading their coats was a historical move of recognizing the king. When the king would come into the city, it wouldn't be unusual for the people to take off their cloaks as fast as they could and throw them on the road in front of the king so that he would walk across their coat. The horse would even walk across their coats. A sign of submission to the king. The people are waving palm branches. Now you'd have to do a little historical study on that to get the significance of that, but palm branches were a patriotic symbol of free Jerusalem, the Jewish nation. It would almost be a sign if the Romans would have understood it of rebellion to the Romans because as they're waving the palm branches, what they're saying is, here he is. Our Savior, and as they're shouting, Hosanna, 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 simply means, save us now. Save us now. So they're, they're throwing their cloaks on the ground, recognizing Him as the King. They're ray- waving the palm branches, symbolic of the Jewish nation, Jewish freedom, Jewish independence. And they're hollering, save us now. Fever pitch. We call it Palm Sunday. would have been really fun to be there. Way better than the Boxcar Day Parade. <laughs> Even the Boxcar Day Parade. The people felt victory was just this close. This close. Restoration of the Jewish nation was just this close. They were that excited. Here he comes, the King. Our salvation is near. Our Savior, the Messiah, has come. And then something really, really strange happens. As if it hasn't been strange already. It says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, and really, what it, when this, if you almost want to get a picture on that map, it would have been he'd have left Bethany, he got the donkey at Bethphage, and now he's just come over the crest to go down in Jerusalem, and he sees the city. And it says as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your salvation. Jesus weeps over the city. And once again, our English language doesn't do justice to the word. There is two words in the Greek that both can be translated weep. One of them is kleo, and the other one is dakruo. Dakruo simply means silently crying, tears running down your face. The word used here is kleo, which means sobbing, wailing uncontrollably. The kind of crying when your shoulders are just going and you're weeping uncontrollably. That's the word that is used here by the writers. It's just Jesus is wailing and weeping over the city. He looked around and he saw the city. He looked around and saw the crowd. He looked around and saw the people. Which brings me to the point of my message. The faces in the crowd. Who would he have seen in the crowd? He would have seen the apostles. Boy, I, again, I just love to imagine what would it have been like for the apostles? Going through all they've went through since that day Jesus looked at them one after the other and says, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. For most of three years they've been homeless. Most of three years, they've been running from one place to another, seeing the coolest miracles ever, and then being run out of town because they were going to kill Jesus. He sees the apostles. At this time, they're probably celebrating, just like the rest of the people. They're probably enjoying the moment, like saying, finally, it's worth it. Finally, we're going to really see him become the king, the Messiah, that we wanted and have been waiting for for so many hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus looks at them and he's weeping. Can you imagine what Jesus was thinking when he was looking at the apostles? He knew what these guys were going to have to go through. He could see the prisons. He could see the whippings and the beatings. He could see the chains and the jails. He could see James being beheaded. He could see Thomas being stoned to death. He could see John being exiled. And he could see Peter being crucified upside down. And he wept for his disciples, the apostles. In the crowd, he would have seen the ruthless Pharisees. The religious leaders of the day. They weren't celebrating. They were probably all nudging everybody, each other and going, what are we going to do now? How are we going to get him? How are we going to get him separated so we can kill him? They were concerned because their position of power, their position of authority was being challenged. They were going to lose control of the people. Their fears were, they they were saying, See, this is what we said was coming. We should have killed him the first time we had a chance. They were nervous. They were scared. They were filled with hatred, protecting their turf. One of them finally shouts out, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The crowds are cheering and screaming, and tell them to shut up. And Jesus, without blinking an eye, says, You know what? Even if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. The Pharisees rejected Christ. They found no... Jesus wouldn't have looked at them and and found joy in knowing that they rejected him. He wept for them. These are the people he came to die for. He would have also seen in the crowd, besides the apostles and the Pharisees, he would have seen the indifferent Romans. All of these Roman soldiers that are there to keep the peace, keep control, because the Romans are in control. Indifferent. They would have probably sat on their horses or stood in their armor and had their swords and spears looking at these Jews like, what a bunch of idiots. They're going crazy for some guy with a beard riding a little donkey. And we're supposed to be worried? Total indifference. Long as you don't bother us, long as you leave us alone, we're okay, do your thing. The indifferent Romans. Jesus wept for him. Their indifference prevented them from seeing who he really was, what he came to offer. And then there's the group that jump on the bandwagon. I mean, there's thousands of people here, and a fraction of them have actually seen Jesus, a fraction of them actually know what's going on. But yet, man, is this exciting! This is it. This is him. This is the guy. This was probably the largest group the, and the loudest group in the whole bunch of people. Self-serving followers. Here's the guy that fed everybody. Maybe he'll feed us. This is the guy that healed the sick. I got a limp. Maybe he'll heal my limp. Whatever he's got for me, this is the guy. And we're cheering and screaming because we want him. To come and meet my needs. Our needs. Freedom is finally here. He's going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to get to be in charge. All of these different things. They'll follow Jesus. As long as he does what they want. Jesus wept for them. I hope it gives you a clearer picture of that day. That we celebrate and call Palm Sunday. This was all taking place. And to me, the key message in the whole thing was Jesus looked out on the people and wept. He didn't weep just because he saw prophetically that that city of Jerusalem was literally going to be leveled. Jesus didn't come to earth too concerned about brick and mortar. He wasn't concerned about pretty buildings. He came over that, that little ridge and he looked at the city And he just realized this city represents the people that I came to die for. And he wept. And really, even though this took place a couple thousand years ago, let me ask you this question. Has it changed much today? Is it any different today? Think about it for a second. Crowds gather. People that are indifferent. People that say the same thing today. Don't bother me. Go ahead, do your thing. If you want to get a little weird for Jesus, you go right ahead. Why do you think you have to change so much? But as long as you don't make me change anything, uh, that's okay. Go ahead, just do your thing and I'll do mine. Jesus wept for those people. Then there's those that are hostile, like the religious leaders. Those who just flat out reject the message of Jesus Christ. Those that hate the message of Jesus Christ. Those that hate the people who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who are just hostile to the gospel message. They refuse to accept the truth. They refuse to submit to his word. They don't want to give up their own power. They don't want to give up their own Pride and, and they got the attitudes. Same thing going on today. And Jesus weeps for them today just like he would have then. And then there's the group that jump on the bandwagon. You know, this group of people I think are probably the most self deceived. These would be the people who have no roots. They're rootless. They're shallow believers if they're believers at all. They really they're really could maybe be called followers instead of believers. They know Jesus. They know about Jesus. They know some Bible stuff. They probably were baptized and confirmed and take communion. They might even go to church. They're probably, most of them, priesters, come on Christmas and Easter. That's probably it. As long as it doesn't mess with their plans as long as it doesn't mess with their lifestyle, as long as God isn't asking me to do something that doesn't sound fun, he's okay. As long as he's meeting my needs, as long as he's the insurance policy that I can always cry out to and call on when I'm in trouble. Great. They're in the crowd cheering, yes, go Jesus. They even probably have the vocabulary down pretty good. They can speak Christianese. But you know what most of the crowd was probably made up when they started hollering, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, was probably those that decided it was time to jump off the bandwagon. We were cheering for Jesus when we thought he was going to come and he was going to defeat the Romans and set us free. We thought he was going to give us whatever we wanted. But as soon as we discover, hey, the real Jesus isn't like who I thought he was and I really don't want this one. Let's join this crowd and holler, crucify him. Crucify him. They had better things to do. Their world is filled with shallow believers or shallow followers. You know, Jesus never, ever said it would be easy to be a follower of Christ. God never said that. Anybody who's told you that doesn't know the word of God. It is a challenge to live a Christian life. It can be difficult, very difficult to live a Christian life. We live in a fallen world with all of the consequences of sin. We are going to go through sickness and disease and tragedy and temptation. Yes, we believe there's a healer. Yes, we believe there's a deliverer. But there's also a world that's fallen and condemned. Anybody who says we can avoid all that stuff is promoting a false gospel. And followers of that false gospel are going to be the first ones to depart when they discover it's not all they thought it was cracked up to be. Those are the people, all three of those groups, that would break the heart of God. Jesus came to earth to die for all mankind, everybody. And he did die for everybody. And he was raised from the dead for everybody. But not everybody will accept salvation, and not everybody will go to heaven, no matter what the universalists say. There has to be an acceptance. Of Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and surrendering yourself to Him. I believe Jesus cried for His apostles. I believe some of those tears for them. And I've shared this with some of you before, and I might have even said it in a sermon before. But there's a scripture in Psalms 56, verse 8, that I really enjoy. It's just part of the scripture. And I believe it applies to us believers who go through trials. We go through testings. We go through those times when we are weeping tears. And in Psalms 56, verse 8, it talks about God, and it says He collects our tears and puts them in a bottle. They're that precious to Him. Precious are the tears of His children. When Jesus weeps over you and me, there are tears of compassion, tears of joy, Tears of love. And as Easter season is upon us, we have an opportunity because the world's talking about Easter. They might spend most of their time talking about a bunny or eggs. But we can take the opportunity to talk about the real meaning of Easter and share the important life-changing message of what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. As we celebrate Poem Sunday, Easter Sunday. Which face in the crowd are you? Which face in the crowd are the people we come in contact with? I hope it's all those disciples, the followers of Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice at the amazing story of redemption of salvation. We rejoice when we see the love that you have for us that you would offer up your own son to die on our behalf. God, I pray for each one of us here and for those that we would come in contact with, who we would have some influence with, that we would have a relationship with where we could share the truth of Jesus. that we would truly be those faces in the crowd of your disciples, your followers, those would, who would not not waver, they would not be blowing in the wind, but would say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Whatever it looks like. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us those opportunities, those divine moments, divine appointments, where we can share the good news of the gospel with family, friends, acquaintances, whoever you might bring across our paths, give us wisdom to know when to speak and what to speak, that you'd receive all the glory and honor. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.